We're in our selfless series. This is our second message. And the title of it is, This Means War. This Means War. And the war that we need to wage is a war on ourselves. A war on selfishness. You see, selfishness is killing our world today. Believers have lost sight of Jesus' mission to spread the gospel because they are too consumed with the message of the I wants, not what He wants. Selfishness must not be allowed to enter our lives and run free. Now the thing is, is that with Christians, we like to cloud our or clothe our selfishness in nice, big, godly terms to make it sound spiritual, like, I don't believe the Lord blesses that type of music, or I don't believe the Lord could love that kind of person, or, or I have been, uh, everything in my life is all centered around me right now. Now, I'm not saying that we, need to have, we don't need to have convictions, because we do. But when our convictions are not rooted in God's Word, but in our preferences, in our opinions, that is where selfishness creeps in. It's like the old saying, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. And you can clothe selfishness in whatever you want to. And I don't speak as someone who has mastered that, because yes, I have my selfish ways. And there have been times in my life where godly people have had to come into my life and say, you're being selfish. And I'm like, huh? Do, do you not understand that I'm a, a pastor? I'm a Christian? I don't have selfishness. And then I start reading passages in the Bible that talk about entitlement. I started reading passages about how we must die to live and how we must die to Christ. And in those types of passages and in those references, I realize that selfishness will creep into our life in even the smallest ways. Folks, we must not try to mask our selfishness with Christian words and cliches. Call selfishness today for what it is. We must wage war on selfishness and replace it with selflessness. We need to be selfless. And I feel like that if you and your spiritual walk and in our church and our community and and really, in the world, if Christians would become more concerned with pleasing God than pleasing themselves and their own appetites, then I do think we would live in a better world. But listen, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. We can read about the disciples. We can read about heroes in the Old Testament and the New Testament. People have always been struggling with selfishness from the very beginning of time, even in the Garden of Eden, where even Adam decided to take upon themselves that they knew better than God did. Well, one afternoon there was a selfish man. He was riding in the back of his limousine when he saw two pathetic-looking men, and they were by the side of the road eating grass. Two men, pathetic-looking, eating grass. So the rich man, he ordered his driver to stop to go out to investigate why these men were eating grass. He asked the men, Why are you eating grass? And they said, we don't have no money for food. <laughs> the first man replied, well, then you must come to me, to my house, insisted the selfish man. But, sir, I got a wife. I got three kids here, said the man. Bring them along, replied the selfish man. The second man exclaimed, well, I got a wife and six kids. 
Bring them on as well, said the rich, selfish man. As he proclaimed, and he headed back into his limo, they all climbed into the car, and once the limo got started underway, one of the men expresses, Sir, you are too kind. Thank you for taking all us with you. The selfish man replied, I am most happy to do it. You'll love my place. The grass is almost a foot tall. <laughs> that was a man that was ruled by selfishness. And when we, we have to be careful that when we see people in need, that we see how we can glorify God through that, not how it can benefit us. It is real easy to sound like we are concerned for something else rather than actually trying to satisfy our selfish desires. This is the thing with selfish Christians. Let me show you this. It says, the gospel of serve Jesus has been replaced with Jesus serve me. You know, Carrie Underwood sang it best. Jesus take the wheel. Amen. Sometimes we try to put our desires and, and get God to meet them rather than us meeting God's desires. So, as we come to our passage this morning, at the pinnacle of Jesus' life and ministry, this marks the last week of Jesus being on earth in the human form with us. Evil has influenced the religious Pharisees to forsake even their own beliefs in God by compelling them to do awful acts, awful, inconceivable things to protect their power and their prestige. Each evil act that they commit, every evil word, every inexcusable action pushed Jesus to the cross to fix a world that had become broken. So as we look at our passage, starting with verse 9 of John chapter 12, let's read verses 9 through 11. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. This is back last week when we were talking about Jesus being in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. Therefore the chief priest decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason Many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. What we see here is that it is amazing. People were there to see Lazarus, the man that Jesus raised from the dead. They were there to see the miracle. And the problem was, for the religious Pharisees, Jesus' movement was gaining traction. And so it is amazing that, that God allowed Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. But at the same time, in just a matter of days, he's killed again. Why? Why should that happen? You see, the evil Pharisees thought everybody is gathering around Jesus and the miracle of Lazarus. So, if we kill Lazarus, then we take care of our problems. And that's what the world thinks today. If we can just get Christians 
to be quiet. If we could just take away reasons for them to celebrate. If we could just get them to retreat back into their churches and to leave us alone out in this life, that we'll be okay. But what the Pharisees fail to understand is that you cannot stop the movement of Jesus Christ. As hard as you try. And what they did in that act, they see that selfishness is revealed by adversity. Selfishness is revealed by adversity. Think of the times in your life where you have been tried and tempted and gone through tough times. It is very easy to become me-focused, me-centered, rather than God-focused. I know some people that they, you know, when they, they get into problems and, and it is all about God, help me. And if you're not careful, there's nothing wrong with that because we're supposed to run to God when we are hurt. But when our entire life deals around that situation and we say to the world out there, to hell with you, I'm in pain, that is where selfishness creeps in. And we see here that in the face of Lazarus' murder and death threats aimed at Jesus, many would have ran and hid. I mean, can you imagine Jesus knowing and seeing his friend Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, be killed by the Pharisees? But yet... These terrible things that were happening forced Jesus to continue in his war against sin. It caused him to continue by fulfilling the prophecy of him going to the cross. The Pharisees planned to kill Jesus and Lazarus because they thought if they could kill them, they could stop the movement. Well, we see in verse 11, we see the true intent of those who were welcoming Jesus. If you go back and you look at verse 11, it says, Because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Lazarus was a rallying point for Christians. They knew that Jesus had power over death and they flocked to that. But I would like to say that every person that was there that day was there for that intent. But they were not. You always have different groups, different people that come in. When Jesus is around, and when you see Jesus doing great and mighty things, you have those that are wanting to partake of it, you have those that are wanting to benefit from that, and you have those that are wanting to criticize it. And so we learn from the, the Pharisees here, and here's a pattern, check this out. One sin leads to a greater sin, which leads to a greater sin. They were the religious of the day. They were the ones that knew the Bible. And here they were killing Lazarus and plotting to eventually killing Jesus Christ. (coughs) And they were supposed to be the spiritual ones. But understand today that God's plan always moves forward. No one can stop it. No president, no king, no person that claims to be God, no boss, no anybody can stop the movement of God in your life, in the movement of this world. Now, amen. We have uh, had an opportunity, Don and I, before we came here, we lived in Wilmington, which was a beach town. And so we lived there for 12 years. and, And every summer there would be animosity between the locals and the tourists. Because... You remember, Al, you were there. Every summer, a trip across town that usually took 15 minutes, now would take 30 to 45 minutes. 
in all of the popular restaurants that you could go into and eat in the off-season, now you had to wait at least an hour and a half everywhere you went. Never mind the money, though, that the tourists brought in. We never thought about that. We never thought about all these cars, they got to buy gas. they got to buy groceries. They're going to our restaurants. And so our folks are getting jobs. And, and so it, it feeds us, right? But we didn't think about that because we were inconvenienced. Because we were worried about our own selfish desires. But in today's passage, we see those two groups and another more concerning group converging in Jerusalem. In this group that we read about, that are watching Jesus and following his story and seeing the miracle of Lazarus, that you have those that are truly obedient to Jesus. You have those that are condemning Jesus. And you have those that are curious. We'll talk about those in just a minute. But in verses 12 through 15, we see the ugly positive side of selfishness. Verses 12 through 15 says, The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear no more, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things, and we'll talk about it in just a minute. But here we see Jesus makes his triumphant entry. Now listen, I've had to be uh, the pleasure of being in some passion plays and some some musicals that where we during the Easter time we sing Hosanna and we have the palm branches and we wave. It's a beautiful thing. Do we not enjoy Easter when we celebrate Jesus riding into Jerusalem? Is it not an awesome thing? I mean, that is like the home game homecoming for us. I mean, it is, it is it's almost as good as Easter. It's good, but it's not that good. But we enjoy that celebration of seeing Jesus being hailed and accepted by his friend. But if you would allow me just for a moment, let me tinker with that image just for a second. Remember, all of these people were there to see Jesus, and they were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. In the Roman culture in which this was happening, I want you to understand, the Roman culture, <laughs> they thought that was a joke. They saw these little Jewish people having their, their king ride in on a donkey. Now listen, when, when the Roman commanders would go off to war and they would be victorious, uh, you remember the great ticker tape parades of old where uh, President Kennedy and other presidents would be going through the streets and people would be throwing confetti out of high-rise buildings, and it was such a, a huge honor. That's the type of honor they would have in Rome when, when a fighter, a general, would come back and he would have behind him all of his people that he captured, and he would have the spoils of everything that he caused, and he would have the remnants of those that he killed, and they would just celebrate. And for those that he brought into town with him, they, he, they would throw them into the Colosseum so that they could have sport by watching the animals tear them apart. But it was a huge celebration. So to the Romans, they thought much like what the world thinks of Christians today. <laughs> oh, isn't that cute? Their king is riding in on a donkey? Give me a break. And sometimes when we, we take back and we see 
that instance from what the world has, it's kind of sobering. It's kind of heart-wrenching to know that what Jesus was going through and, and all of the benefits that He was receiving from people's praise still wasn't taken seriously by everybody. But what do we see in that? Jesus makes His triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And we see, according to Zechariah 9.9, that He was being... Why did Jesus go into Jerusalem on a donkey? Because He was being obedient to God. Because in Zechariah 9.9, you see the prophecy that the Messiah would ride in on a donkey. (laughs) Jesus probably was saying, God, are you serious? A donkey? No, He didn't do that. Because He was all about doing His Father's will. Me, I probably would have said, really, a donkey? It's like, okay, I want to drive a Cadillac, but you're making me drive a Pinto into town? Come on. Some of you are not old enough to know what a Pinto is. It's a bean with wheels, okay? And so, anyway, Jesus is riding into town on the donkey because not only is He humble and obedient, He's following the prophecies of Scripture. Most kings would have had chariots and and huge, majestic horses with the most precious jewels adorning them. Not Jesus. Jesus carries out the prophecy to the T by riding into Jerusalem on a colt. And palm branches, they were waving palm branches. The palm branches were a symbol and a sign of peace and victory. And we had three types of people that I mentioned a moment ago there that day. There are three types of followers that were in Jerusalem for Jesus' entry. Number one, the out-of-towners. They were visiting their homeland for the festival of the Passover. For one, one time a year, the Jews would, would rally in Jerusalem. And they would remember the Passover. If you remember back in the Old Testament to where they took the blood of the goat and put it over the door jam, and if the, angel, if the blood was there on the post, the doorpost, the angel, the death angel would pass by and not kill them. That's the Passover. And so they were celebrating that, and here is Jesus. And so you had those that were out of town that were coming in because that's what they did once a year. Then you had the locals. The locals, those who had witnessed the miracles of Jesus, those who had seen Lazarus come out of his tomb, and those that saw Jesus raise him from the dead. And then there were the threatened religious leaders who were concerned that Jesus would take his movement worldwide and they would be out of the job. In the minds of the Pharisees, Jesus was there to start a revolution and take the throne of a king. You see, you have the Pharisees and you have the disciples. They both thought the same thing, but they were on opposite ends of the spectrum. The disciples thought, we are serving Jesus Christ and he is going to be a king They were thinking earthly reign. They thought that they would be like his cabinet and they would have all of these different uh, duties and money and all of these things because they were serving a future king. But then you had the Pharisees, on the other hand, they were like, if this guy is king, we're out of a job. So the disciples followed Jesus. The Pharisees fought against him. Well, you see from those three groups that there were three different actions or actually reactions to Jesus. And those are still true today, my friends. The first thing we see is there are those that are curious. Many who were there 
They wanted to see the show. And there might be somebody even in here today that thought, I didn't come to church to do business with God today. I'm here because someone drug me here. I'm here because I've always have known that I have to be here. But you are here for a reason. I don't know what it is. But let me tell you this. There are people in this church and in other churches today that are not committed to Christ, but they are curious because they have heard about what He did. They want to see people that are living a true Christian life. They want to see miracles. There were some people in that crowd, folks, they were not there for Jesus. They were there to see Lazarus and to see the show. And they thought if Jesus could help them, maybe they can help me. I hate to say it, folks, but they were there for selfish reasons. They were not there to serve Jesus Christ. They were there to get something from Him. And how do we know that? We see that later when they leave him. But you have the curious. The people of Jerusalem, they were hailing Jesus as their king, not because that he had done for them, but what they had hoped he would do for him. More specifically, Lazarus. Listen, let me just put it this way. They, they worshipped Jesus for what he did, not who he was. They worshipped Jesus for what he did, not who he was. Folks, that is a question I have to ask myself. That in my moments of selfishness, am I serving God because it's my lifelong calling? Yes. Am I serving God because I am blessed to have a church that helps me to put food on the table? And look, you're doing pretty good. Okay? I'm not suffering. I'm very grateful for that. But at the end of the day, there are times in my life, and I don't know about you, but times in my life when I think, am I serving God for the right reasons? Am I going to church for the right reasons? Am I going so I can feel better? Or am I going to let other people know about His love so that they could be saved? Folks, people worship Jesus not for what He, or for what he did, not for who He was. And the city of Jerusalem wanted Jesus to make them a superpower again. John 1.49 says, Jesus claimed to be the King of Israel and the Messiah. It was the hope of many that He would defeat the Romans and set Israel free. Again, there were those that thought, there's our freedom. There's our Moses. There's our ticket out. He's going to raise up a kingdom. He's going to overthrow the Romans. And we're going to be number one again. They had no clue, did they? Yes, He is King. Yes, He has a kingdom, but it's not in this world, is it? It's in the world to come. So you had those that were curious. You had the courageous. The disciples, we like to throw them under the bus all the time, but they left their lives, folks. They left their families at home while they went out and ministered. They left their callings of being full-time fishermen, of being a physician, of being a tax collector. They left everything behind to follow Him. They were courageous. Let us never take that away from them. They were committed to Jesus, but often you see, time and time again in Scripture, they were more committed to the idea of Jesus' kingdom than to Jesus Himself. And we see that they were more concerned with their tradition. The condemning were the Pharisees, the third group. The Pharisees were more worried about their tradition, 
rather than standing for Jesus being self-proclaimed Messiah. I think probably the Pharisees' motto was the same thing in many churches today. We've never done it that way before. We don't want to change. We're going to do church like we did 50 years ago. Folks, I've got to tell you, the page has turned. And when we put our traditions and when we put our wants and our needs above what Christ is calling us to do to reach a world, we are in sin. Do not let selfishness rob us of the very blessing that God wants to give us. The Pharisees must have been infuriated to see this man claiming to be their king and to make a mockery of being the Messiah by riding into town on a donkey. Whatever did this man, Jesus have to do to make a mockery of their entire messianic prophecy and system. It was a slap in their face to their tradition and to their standing. Folks, if we really get serious about loving Jesus, those that are stuck in tradition will be offended. If it's not based in Scripture, but based in their personal opinions. And everyone was looking at how Jesus would change their life. When the curious realized that Jesus was not there to give them the political, financial, or physical assistance, many turned from him. The point we see here is that when the curious do not wage war on their selfishness, they miss the true blessings of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was and still is offering to them, even to this day, eternal life, forgiveness of sin, purpose for life, and the purpose of knowing Him and making Him known. If you are the curious crowd this morning, if you're in here just getting evidence and you're wanting to see Jesus working, do not let your selfishness rob you of God's greatest gift. His Son, Jesus Christ, as a payment for your sin. Every sin you have committed or ever will commit, Jesus Christ died for them. And then also we need to wage war on our selfish thoughts. Some here think that they do not need Jesus Christ. They can handle it on their own. Some think that, I hear you, preacher, but I just need time to figure it out. We're not guaranteed time, folks. Some think that your sins are too great for God to forgive. How many people have I talked to that say, well, I'll come to Jesus when I get my life straight. Folks, you never have to take a bath to get a shower. When Jesus cleans, He cleans everything from top to bottom and you do not have to do anything to get ready for it. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus Christ. There is no work. There is no action. There is no amount of money. There is no works-based plan to gaining access to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes to you as you are in the middle of your sin and says, I forgive you. And for us to think that He won't do that in our lives, think about this. If, we are to, if, you, if you've ever said this, you have become your own God in your life. If you've ever said, Jesus couldn't do that for me. Jesus wouldn't forgive me of that sin. If you've ever said, God's never let me do that. Or God would never want me to do that. Let me have, I've got news for you today. You are not God. And you are not Jesus Christ. There is no sin that Jesus Christ will not forget. You do not have to clean up to approach Him. Come to Him as 
you are. And if you think that God is done with you, or if you think God's plan has moved beyond you, then you have accepted the lie of the devil because you do not have the right to tell God what you can or cannot do because you are not God. Like, I know we live in a day where now kids tell their parents what they're going to do. I don't know how it got to that point. But I know this, that when I was being raised, if I were to tell my mom and dad what I was going to do, they would let me know right quick where my place in the food chain laid. Because I'm, this, you know, when I wanted to argue, I'm like, Why? And then, you know, they will say, just because, just because. And then I keep going and going and going. And then, you know how I know the argument's over? It's when they say, because I'm your parent. Mmm. Don't go anywhere after that, do you? That's kind of like the triple dog there from uh, Christmas Story. Once they say, I'm your parent, it doesn't go any higher. I want you to understand something. God is telling you today, I'm your God. And I can do with you whatever I want. And if you don't want it, I'll give it to somebody else. And Jesus Christ is still Jesus Christ. As I said a few weeks ago, we can't put him back in the grave, folks. Jesus is alive. And Jesus is coming back. And for someone to sit here and think in their own sin that there is something in my life that Jesus will not forgive, you're lying to yourself and you're consumed with selfishness. Because you're saying, I can handle this and I can carry this much better than how Jesus could. Don't be that person. Praising God for what He can do for us is a good thing, but if it is contingent on how He responds to our request, then it's glorified selfishness. Here's how you test your selflessness. Here's how you test it. Ask this one question. Would you follow Jesus even if it meant you would not get everything you wanted or felt entitled to? That is a huge question. Would you follow Jesus even if it meant you would not get everything you wanted or felt entitled to, or even if he would answer in a way that you didn't want? Would you still follow Jesus? If your answer is, I don't know, it's selfishness. If your answer is, I will not follow Jesus, Because he didn't give me what I wanted. He didn't answer the prayer like I thought he would. That's selfishness. The only answer to this question that shows that we are selfless, like Jesus Christ, is by answering, yes, God, whatever. Whatever you say, I will do. I talk to people all the time. They say, well, well, James, I don't understand. I've done this. I had my quiet time four days for two weeks. Four days a week. I went to church both Sundays, I even went to two Wednesday nights. And I prayed about it, and nothing happened. So I'm just going to give up. What has that person just done? They have taken whatever they gave to God and pulled it back into their own hands. Selfishness. I'm telling you, folks, we can, gl- we can glorify selfishness and we can make it sound very spiritual. Oh, Lord, I'm struggling. I've done. I've lived for you for two weeks. I can't take it anymore. It's selfishness. We've got to be sure that we don't let that creep into our life. And finally, we need to know what 
and who we are fighting for. Verses 16 through 19. Let's take a moment and read that. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered the things that had been written about him, and they had done these things to him. I love this. Verse 16 for the disciples, that's when the refrigerator light came on. Ding! When all of a sudden, every sermon, every miracle, every prayer, every experience with Jesus Christ came into light at that moment. That when Jesus was humbled, Jesus entered into the kingdom. And eventually when Jesus was crucified, all of these things came on. He says that in verse 17, Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they had heard he'd done this sign. John can't be any more clearer. Why were people following Jesus? Not because of his heart, but because of what he did. Because he raised Lazarus from the dead. It says nowhere in here that they committed their lives to Jesus Christ yet. They were just curious. And then verse 19 says, Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What I want you to see is what the disciples see is that the resurrection places everything in our life into focus. Every dot for the disciples was connected. Every T was crossed. Every I was dotted. Every sermon, every miracle, every prayer, every teachable moment. So what does that tell you and tell me? It tells me as we grow older, we see a few things. Number one, every event in your life draws you to the cross. Now, for some of you that have got a lot of years on me, you would say, Amen, preacher. And those of you that are young would say, Ah, whatever, preacher. It's amazing how time gives you perspective, doesn't it? But even when you are a young child, all the way up until you are one foot from the grave, every moment, everything in, in your life draws you to the cross of Jesus Christ. The second thing we see is that every event in your life makes sense in the light of the resurrection. There are things in my life where I wonder, come on God, why did this happen? And I do not know, and I will not know until I get to the other side of heaven. And I know this, every bad thing that I ever did, every moment of despair, every moment of self-doubt, every moment of being consumed by evil thoughts and doing evil things, when I met Jesus Christ and placed Him into my life as Savior and Lord, it all made sense after that. That I, I was living as bad as I could because I knew that I had to hit bottom before I looked up. And maybe some of you have been in that situation to where you, God took you to the bottom of the pit. But praise God, the bottom was solid. And you look up and you realize that every event in your life has led you to the cross. Every event in your life makes sense when placed in the light of the resurrection of Christ. And third, when Christ resurrected, every believer's calling became clear. 
you have got a lot of other cults, a lot of other false religions that are out there today, and they demand their believers to do things for that God. Acts, money, service, all of these things. All Jesus demands is your heart. All Jesus demands is your trust. All Jesus demands is your belief in Him. Romans 10, 9 and 10. So if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Despite the disciples' understanding or the lack thereof, Jesus was preparing His disciples for their future. He does the same thing for you and I. It says in Hebrews 20, 21, Now may the God of peace who brought you up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, with the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with all that is good to do his will, working in us that is so pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Glory belongs to him forever and ever. It says in Second Corinthians 9.8 that he will give you everything you need to excel in every good work. You see, the religious Pharisees thought they were losing the war. They said, look, They've gone after him. We've accomplished nothing. They had no understanding that when they killed Lazarus, check this out, folks. Your pot roast will be there, I promise you, when you get out of here. And I, I'm almost done. When they killed Lazarus, they lit the match to the fire. The harder they pushed against Jesus, the further and the faster it it led Jesus to the cross. All of their plotting to kill Jesus, their murder of Lazarus, all had to be done because of Jesus' mission for it to be fulfilled. If you look at verses, uh, in verse 19 where they say, look, the world has gone after him, it was both an exaggeration, they were being a little sarcastic, but it was also a prophecy that after this, people would follow Jesus Christ. And the war against their selfishness agenda had already been won. Listen, folks. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a colt. And they were waving palm branches and singing Hosanna. And that was a great celebration. Unless you were a Roman citizen who thought that was kind of odd. But let me be perfectly clear. Revelation 19.11 Then I saw heaven opened. And there was a white horse. His rider is called Faithful and True. And he judges and makes war in righteousness. When Jesus Christ comes back, he is going to be majestic. Every problem, every prayer, every disappointment, and every sin will be gone. For those believe in Jesus Christ. Our King is coming. Say that with me. Our King is coming. He shows us that we need to fight for ourselves. Because folks, we are at war with ourselves. We must fight selfishness with selflessness. The Bible clearly teaches that there can be no glory unless first there is suffering. Folks, ask God to reveal and to remove any selfish ways in your life this morning. And if you're curious or even 
condemning regarding Jesus. I want you to know something. He loves you. And believer, place your struggles in the light of Jesus' resurrection. Folks, if you are tired of running your own life, try living for Jesus. John 10.10 says, I have come that you may have life more abundantly. Or others' translations say, to the full. Now, you'll hear some prosperity folks tell you, that's right, brother. You give the Lord, you give money to Him, He'll give it back to you. But when the Bible says, I have come to give you life, and life more abundantly, when you get life, you get the good and the bad. But Jesus gives you a way to cope with it. Say, oh, Jesus is a crutch. Absolutely. And when I'm hurting, I need a crutch. If you're hurting today, Jesus is here for you. You need to fight for yourself, and then you need to fight for others. Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Folks, the dark world needs believers to quit shining the light on themselves and shine it out to other people. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for Your Word, and thank You for Your Son showing us that even He who was equal to You, Lord, humbled Himself to come to this earth to live a sinless life, to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, to be cursed, to be mocked, to be spit upon, to be crucified, so that we may have life with You through the forgiveness of sins. If there is someone here that wants to quit being curious and commit to you today and to become a Christian. May they come forward. I'll lead them in a prayer and we'll get them started on the greatest journey of their lives. Maybe someone just needs prayer, would like to come to the altar, or even join this church. This invitation time is for you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.